When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to Pax Britannica. The Scottish Revolution Interview Series Protestantism, Revolution and Scottish Political Thought with Dr. Carrie Schultz Welcome to the Scottish Revolution Interview Series In today's episode, I'm happy to speak with Dr. Carrie Schultz, Rome Fellow at the British School at Rome. Dr. Schultz completed her PhD at Queen's University Belfast, where she worked on a project funded by the European Research Council about war and the supernatural in early modern Europe. As we discuss in the interview, Dr. Schultz is currently researching British and Italian intellectual networks and is working on her first book, Protestantism, Revolution and Scottish Political Thought, The European Context. Dr. Schultz also produces the Research in Scottish History podcast, which I highly recommend you listen to. More details on her work and where you can keep up to date with it can be found in the show notes as well as on paxbritannica.info. Dr. Carrie Schultz, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. So you're currently working on a book for the Edinburgh University Press titled Protestantism, Revolution and Scottish Political Thought. The European Context, 1637 to 1651. Now, I wonder if you could explain a little bit about where you see this work within the historiography and uh, where you placed your thesis, which this is largely based on, I believe. Yes, so this is based on a thesis that I just finished last year in July 2020, and that was entitled Political Thought and Protestant Intellectual Culture in the Scottish Revolution from the Same Time Period. The main historiographical intervention that I think the book is going to make is twofold. So on the one hand, I'm intervening in what we would consider the British historiography or War of Three Kingdoms historiography. So when I was starting this project, I noticed that Scotland has often been subsumed into a British perspective or placed within the Three Kingdoms. So it's often analyzed sort of as part of a union, or if it's focused on solely, then it's kind of local and regional context in Scotland. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was actually take a step back and say, okay, where does Scotland fit in continental Europe? So we're not looking at it just in relationship to England and Ireland, but what's going on in Europe at the time and how is Scotland reflecting that or perhaps challenging that? 
So that was one of the main interventions is I really wanted to focus on a continental European perspective and to sort of put Scotland and covenanted Scotland. So the ideas that are coming out of the covenanted revolution within that broader context, which I don't think has really been done before. Um, and that was to me quite an important intervention to make. And then on the second hand, it's if we look at sort of what historians of political thought and intellectual historians have often focused on, they tend to look at the development of secular political ideas. So ideas about the civil state, its governance, its magistrates, and how those emerge into what we call the sort of modern liberal state. And so one of the problems with that, though, is that we sideline religion when we look just at secular ideas about the state. And I wanted to push back on that. So I wanted to say, what is happening in Scotland with this relationship between religion and politics? And can we somehow challenge the idea that Scotland and continental Europe at this time were creating the foundations for a modern secular state? And so one of the things that I've seen happening in the historiography is that a lot of scholars who study religion and politics are really interested in looking at the connection between political ideas and religion as in scriptural verses or ideas taken from the Bible. And that's fantastic work, and I think that's really important, but I wanted instead to look at theology. So I'm primarily an intellectual historian, so I'm really interested in theological ideas and its relationship to political thought, not simply how people in 17th century Scotland are drawing on the Bible, for example. So I think those were two of the major interventions that I'm hoping to make. They're ones that I put forward in my thesis, which passed. So I'm hoping that they're, you know, they're accurate <laughs> enough. Um, and then I'm putting those forward in the book as well. So that's kind of how I've situated the general argument and then the ideas that I'm interested in. So I noticed in your work that many of the reformed preachers in the covenant were drawing particularly on Catholic works. I wonder if you could expand more on that, because I quite find I find that quite surprising. Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite parts of my research. And I think it's the part that surprises people most often when I present it. Um, and it depends on which audience I present it to. So if I talk to historians of religion or church historians, whenever I say that the Reformed Covenanters were actually using Catholic ideas quite favorably, that's often shocking to them. And they wouldn't suspect that, primarily because the Covenanters obviously had a lot of language about um, anti-popery, anti-papalism. Uh, they were very anti-Catholic in theology, so that's often a shocker to them. But then if I present the same argument to historians of political thought, they're often not as surprised. Because I think when we detach some of these political ideas from the theology that they're bound up in, I think it's a bit easier to see these traditions and the fluidity of confessional boundaries. So all that to say is kind of a preface for why I think this is really important. We do have a very staunchly reformed community in Scotland at the time. And obviously the covenanters in most of their works, if you look at the leading covenanters, a lot of them are arguing against Catholicism. They're saying that King Charles the, uh, the I is trying to impose Episcopalian ceremonies and bring the Church of Scotland closer to Catholicism. They're very worried about that. So even though theologically they really disagree with the Catholics, they can actually get a lot from their political thought. And that's what I focused on. So at the same time, in the kind of early 1600s, there's quite a few Catholic scholastics who are operating out of the School of Salamanca in Spain. And they're very interested in questions about law and jurisprudence. 
They're really interested in ideas about civil authority uh, and the connection to the Pope. And they're publishing really lengthy, kind of awful to read, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, <laughs> very long, all in Latin. Some of them, most of them have been translated now because there's very adept scholars working on them. But a lot of them are lengthy in Latin and they're just a struggle to get through, but they're really interesting in terms of the ideas that they put forth. So one of the things that I focused on was Samuel Rutherford's use of Catholic scholastic political theory. So Samuel Rutherford was arguably the, the biggest kind of political theorist of the covenanting movement. And so in 1644, he wrote Lex Rex, which is quite famous, um, you know, across the board for most historians of Scotland. And in this treatise, he argues that the covenanters are waging a defensive war against the king for the protection of the true religion, which is all very sort of standard reformed resistance theory that we see in the 16th and the 17th century. So nothing's too surprising there. But one of the things that really fascinated me is that in the first two questions, so Lex Rex is basically 44 questions. And in the first two, which are about the origins of government, he cites 10 people and one is Aristotle and then nine are Catholic scholastics. And I found that really interesting. I was wondering, you know, why is he drawing so heavily on this Catholic tradition as opposed to reformed authors that he could have probably gotten some of the same ideas from. And so what he does with that is he goes to Catholic ideas about the natural origins of government. So one of the main questions in this time period for basically any intellectual in Europe is whether or not government is something that is ordained by God or whether it's something that's natural. And so basically what Rutherford wants to do is say it's both, because if you say that government is only divinely ordained, well, that gets you into kind of scary territory about theocracy and divine right of kings and all of those sorts of questions. But if you say it's only natural, then there's no place for God in the natural kingdom. So he's trying to kind of go between those two and say, well, it's both. And he gets his ideas about the natural origins of government from Catholic scholastics. And that's really important because what it allows him to do is say that the form of government and the people who you choose to rule over you are elective. So you can basically ordain the office of a magistrate, God has ordained that office, but you choose as individuals, as subjects, you choose the person who holds that office. And he's really drawing that from Catholic thought because that's quite a standard argument in Catholic political theory um, is that magistrates are consented to by the people. So when he's able to do that, he basically can then defend a Presbyterian church settlement, which is what I think his main goal is to do, is he wants to defend Presbyterian, Presbyterianism in the church. And he's able to do that by saying, well, look, we can choose our civil magistrate. So that means that we can have a limited monarchy with parliament having more authority. And that mirrors the form of church government that we want, which is based on elders and synods and presbyteries and the general assembly, not on royally appointed bishops. So for him, and actually, I think using this Catholic scholastic political theory allows him to advance an ecclesiastical goal of his that he has in mind. And by doing so, he's really challenging a lot of divine right theorists at the time. He's challenging people who think that James and Charles Stuart have rules because they were directly appointed by the king or by God and they could no longer be resisted. So that's a really fascinating element of the kind of ecclesiological and political discourse that's going on in Scotland at the time. And something that I found those confessional boundaries to be really interesting and in how they're breaking down in ways that we maybe wouldn't have thought possible. So that is really interesting because it makes me think of a lot of the rhetoric that was coming out of the Covenanters around the Bishop's Wars, where they're 
quite explicit in that they see themselves as loyal to the crown and to the throne, but not necessarily to the person wearing that crown or sitting in that throne, and they're, they're reserving their right to oppose, oppose the crown while still remaining loyal to it. Is that along the same kind of lines? Exactly. So one of the things that I find really interesting about the Covenanters is that they are actually, I think, quite conservative in their claims about the monarch. So they never want to do away with monarchy. They never want to do away with um, the king, you know, and even in 1649, a lot of them are shocked by the execution. That's not something that they ever had hoped for or desired. So they are, I think, quite conservative in saying, well, we are loyal subjects and we are waging a defensive war. Like we're in no way being um, sort of radical or revolutionary in what we're doing. Um, so I think that is very much an element. But then at the same time, the Scots really are infused with, I guess the, the discourse of the Scots is infused by this idea of a threefold covenant between God, king, and subjects. And that's essential because when they look at this, they're always saying, well, the king broke the covenant with God. So he made a covenant through his coronation uh, and he took a coronation oath, which then means that he agrees to rule for the protection of his subjects and for the protection of the true religion. And if he fails in that covenant, well, then we can choose a different magistrate who will uphold that. So for the covenanters, it is there is very much the echoes of that where they're saying, well, we're loyal to the idea of, of a limited monarchy. We're loyal to monarchy as an institution, but the monarch has a very clear role or an obligation to the king and to God and to the people. And if he fails in that, then we can replace them. So I think, yeah, that rhetoric, I mean, the covenanters are really trying to show that they're not looking to overthrow the king. They don't want to be seen as radical. They don't really want to be seen as pushing, you know, a, a radical king killing agenda, uh, because that would align them more with, you know, the Jesuits and arguments against the Jesuits. So I think in that sense, it is very clear they're articulating this, this loyalty to the king, but within bounds. Uh, and I would say they're pushing for a more limited monarchy in what they're doing. All this talk about replacing the king, was there ever actually any suggestion put forward about, about actually deposing Charles as king, keeping the monarchy, but replacing him with, say, his Charles II or, or something similar or a pretender from abroad? You know, I haven't, not that I've come across. So I think it's all nice in theory, you know, to say that, but I think in practicality, I didn't really see that happening in a lot of the printed works. I think what the covenanters, covenanters thought they were doing was reprimanding Charles. I think they thought that by petitioning him, by waging these wars, that they could get him to see the error of his ways and to turn around and support Presbyterianism. So I don't think that the Covenanters ever really seriously considered, you know, actually deposing a king and somehow replacing them. I think in theory, they were happy to argue that just because it was a, it was a conversation that was going around quite a lot. So in political treatises from both a reform tradition and from a Catholic one, you often see questions about, well, how does a monarch become a legitimate monarch through conquest, consent, all these sorts of questions. So I think they're very interested in that, but I would say, practically speaking, that wasn't something that they were really looking to do to replace Charles. I think they mostly wanted to reprimand him and try to get him to correct the error of his ways, get on their side, institute Presbyterianism in England and Scotland, and um, you know, just be more amenable to their sort of religious goals, um, if you will. So yeah, I would say, um, I mean, not to say that that doesn't exist somewhere, I haven't come across it, but I think, yeah, for the most part in what they're putting out, it does seem like they just want to reprimand him and sort of try to put pressure on him to, to conform to their desires. How did royalists attempt to counter the arguments of the Covenanters, especially when it came to matters of religion? So I 
Roman royalists in Scotland are defending royal, royal intervention in the church. They're really defending his prerogative. Um, so this is a really interesting theological question. I think this is where I've started. A lot of my research is focused on theology as opposed to just the use of this, you know, scripture or the Bible. Um, so it's a really great question. If you don't mind me sharing a little bit of theology. No, please go ahead. Um, so one of the things that is central to debates between covenanters and royalists, especially around 1637 to about 1640, is the idea of adiaphora. So that is a Greek term that basically means ceremonies and doctrines in the church, which are neither prescribed or prohibited in scripture. So anything that's sort of left open to interpretation. And royalists and covenants are really debating that category and what that category consists of. So for a lot of the covenanters, they're saying anything that is not talked about in scripture and explicitly required in the church should just be left out of it. So if we think about things, um, say kneeling at communion as an example. So the covenanters would look in the Bible and say, well, there's nothing that says that we should kneel at communion. Therefore, that's a human intervention and needs to be left out of the church. So they would kind of go that route. And that's where they get kind of strict, a very strict and small category for what Adiaphora is. On the other hand, royalists would say, well, if it's not really in scripture, but it's not harmful to salvation, then we can do that. And one of the ways we can do that is through royal intervention. So if Charles wants to institute a book of common prayer, if he wants to institute bishops, if he wants to have kneeling at communion as sort of provided for in the Articles of Perth, that's fine because it's not corrupting true worship, it's not corrupting salvation. So that's a huge hinge point, I think, between what royalists are saying and what covenanters are saying in the period when we look at the structure, the doctrines, and the ceremonies of the church. So I think when royalists in Scotland are trying to defend the idea that the king actually does have some royal prerogative over the church, he has supremacy over the church, that he can institute these worship ceremonies, uh, he can institute a new book of common prayer, and that's not fundamentally corrupting the church or salvation of its subjects. That's kind of where they're drawing from. They're saying, well, these things aren't regulated expressly in scripture, and there's no problem with him doing that. And the Covenanters, on the other hand, obviously they see the Reformed Kirk of Scotland as basically the purest Reformed church in Europe. Um, and they're really, really careful to make sure that that doesn't change. And that's why I think they're very hesitant um, and very hostile to Charles's reforms and to him saying that he has the same sort of supremacy over Church of Scotland that he has over the Church of England. So that's one of the ways that I see them trying to limit um, Charles's royal prerogative, as well as his royal supremacy, by basically looking at this theological category and saying, well, what can the king actually legitimately impose in the church? What should be left out of the church? Um, and where is the king's role in that? So yeah, I would say when we look at Scotland, um, that's mostly kind of the argument that I've seen in terms of royal intervention is actually from this theological perspective and saying, well, are these ceremonies necessary, expedient and lawful? And kind of what is the king's role in instituting them? And what kind of literary and, and theological work were the Covenanters drawing from? Obviously there's, there's the big names like Knox. I'm assuming that Knox was quite an important part of the, of the debate, even though he was, you know, long dead. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Um, so, further theological arguments, I mean, it's kind of the, the standard reformed authors in continental Europe and in Scotland that you would assume. So, when they're defending Presbyterianism, a lot of them are looking to Knox and Melville. Um, when they're defending, um, they're often engaging with, sometimes with uh, English authors as well. So, sometimes they were 
English Presbyterians um, kind of in the 1610s that they were interested in talking about and using their works. And then of course they're drawing on sort of standard reformed works from the continent. Um, so thinking about, you know, simple people like Beza, Calvin, uh, David Piraeus, um, those sorts of people. And so I think where they're most heavily citing works and where they're most heavily participating, I think in intellectual tradition is really on the question of resistance. Um, and that's where I think we can place them more within this tradition of a standard reformed theory of resistance, if you will, that's up for debate whether or not there's even a category for a Calvinist theory of resistance. But I would say they're not unusual in their ideas about defending the church and the true religion from encroachment of a civil magistrate. I think they're very much in line with what's going on in continental Europe at the time as well. And so basically they're drawing, yeah, they've got quite a large source for source base, you know, for who they're drawing on theologically as well as politically um, that spans Scotland, England, as well as continental Europe. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So for the Royalists, what were they basing their political ideology on? Were they drawing from sources like the Covenanters were? Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. And I think it's one that's really important to look at now particularly. So I'm really interested in the Royalists and kind of as a comparison to the Covenanters in a way that I don't think has really been done in any sustained way before. So in my thesis, I really focused on both sides, uh, covenanting and royalist movement. And so I think this is really important because there's a long standing tradition which has been overturned in recent years. So it's not as prevalent, but it used to be that Scotland could be reduced to the conservative Northeast in the period. 
So thinking about places like Aberdeen and the Aberdeen doctors, particularly waging some of the initial opposition to the National Covenant in 1638 and 1639. So we used to see sort of the, the Northeast and the Highlands of Scotland as sort of the bastions of royalism. But in recent years, we are now overturning that analysis and we can actually see that there was a lot of opposition to the covenanting movement more broadly throughout Scotland um, and especially in the universities and especially in the south of Scotland as well. So recent work, um, I think, you know, Chris Langley's edited collection on the National Covenant. There's a lot of essays in there that speak about Scottish royalism in Glasgow, as well as sort of more broadly throughout Scotland. And I wanted to participate in that historiographical debate as well. So one of the things that I looked at was royalist political thought, and that really hasn't been examined for a variety of practical reasons, honestly. Um, one of those is that royalists simply weren't as inclined to record sustained reasons for their uh, you know, loyalty to Charles as the Covenanters were. So the Covenanters really had to work hard to overturn a status quo of the divine right of kings. They really needed to almost produce a propaganda trail so they could make a defensive war, so they could really illustrate that Charles was threatening the true religion. So we see a lot more writing coming out of the Covenanting movement. We see a lot more political theory and theology that's coming out to defend basically the Covenanting agenda. Whereas royalists don't really have the same volume of material and they also don't have as explicit of reasons. Um, they don't make them as clear. But I do think that there are quite a few royalists who are writing, uh, whether in manuscript or in you know, lengthier treatises. And I think they're really well worth looking at. So two of the people that I focus on quite a lot were John Maxwell and John Corbett, and, as well as the Aberdeen doctors, but they've had a bit more um, scholarly attention. So I tried to shift to some other royalists. And um, both of these, you know, Corbett and Maxwell, they're both drawing extensively on continental European material as well. And so I think I mentioned earlier how the Covenanters were actually really using Catholic scholastic political theory and how beneficial that was for their ideas about natural government or divine, divinely ordained government. And the Royalists are actually doing the same thing, but they're using a very different strand of Catholic thought. So Maxwell and Corbett, for example, are drawing on this, this idea, um, kind of a tradition in Catholic Catholicism that's put forward by people like Jumbadon, William Barclay, and Adam Blackwood. And so these three characters are, oh, not characters, sorry, <laughs> these three figures are putting forward ideas about the king's legal absolute sovereignty. And that's really important because it's not just saying the king is divinely ordained by God and therefore he can never be resisted. What these three are saying is actually he has legal sovereignty. So he's the author of all civil law, which means that he can't ever be held accountable to it because he created it. And that's really important because both Corbett and Maxwell are drawing on that tradition and they're saying, well, the king might be you know, divinely ordained, but he also creates law. And for that reason, we can't hold him accountable to it. He's not in a covenant with us where you know, he, he's subject to the same laws as we are. So I think that's really interesting is they're drawing from a different Catholic perspective um, and you know, using a different side of a Catholic debate than the Covenanters are. But then the second element of that as well is they're actually accusing the Covenanters from within a Catholic tradition itself. So there's a big idea going around in Catholicism that's highly debated and that's about the papal deposing power. So essentially that's the power of the Pope to urge subjects to depose a secular magistrate if that magistrate has been excommunicated from the church. So that was really kind of a threatening thing for many Catholics because that was saying then that all subjects owed their primary allegiance to the Pope 
and then only secondary allegiance to civil magistrates. So if a pope decided that a ruler was ruling, you know, heretically, then subjects had no allegiance. And so that divided Catholics themselves. But what's interesting is that debate appears in Scottish royalist political thought. So Corbett and Maxwell both accused the Covenanters of now placing the General Assembly in a Presbyterian church structure in the place of the Pope. So they say, well, actually, in pursuing this Presbyterian agenda of yours, you're trying to make the Presbytery or the General Assembly above the civil magistrate. And you're using the church's standards, essentially, to depose a civil ruler. So it's really interesting to me, I think, how Catholic royal or how royalists are also engaging with Catholic thought, which is very different strands. And I particularly find that idea about the papal deposing power just fascinating because they're saying, here's this very Catholic argument within a Catholic church structure, and then now they're really transposing it directly to Presbyterianism in Scotland. So I think there's a lot of richness that comes out of Scottish political writing, um, both covenanting side and the royalist side that hasn't really been put in full comparison yet. And I think there's so much work to be done there. And it's really exciting direction for, for thinking about Scottish royalism. That's really interesting because something I remember reading about was some of the criticism that came towards the Covenanters was this scandalous accusation that they are essentially acting like Catholics in their opposition to royal authority and their opposition to the royal supremacy. And I never fully grasped that, but I think that what you've just mentioned helps explain that quite a bit. Yeah, and I think, you know, as I mentioned before, um, I think I brought up that Oftentimes, a lot of the royalists would accuse the Covenanters of being radical king killers um, and sort of align, uh, allying themselves with a Jesuit way of thinking. And so that often meant, it, I think that was a reference a lot of times to this debate about whether or not your ultimate allegiance is to the Pope and to sort of your confessional tradition or whether it's to your secular magistrate. And so I think what they're doing is they are saying very much the Presbyterians in Scotland are allying themselves with this sort of radical movement in Catholicism where the Pope can basically depose any civil magistrate, can urge his subjects to do that. Um, so I think there is a big crossover there. And I think it's not necessarily they're acting, you know, the Covenanters aren't acting Jesuitically in their theology, but they are perhaps being accused of acting Jesuitically in the way that they see the relationship between the church and the civil ruler. So I think that's really fascinating. And especially, I just, I really find it interesting how this sort of Catholic debate really transposes itself into what we consider a really reformed, staunchly reformed community. And it has such an important role in that discourse. So you're currently in Rome. What are you there to do? Because it sounds fascinating. Yes. Um, so one of the things that my PhD research focused on was Scottish universities and how political and theological ideas were taught to students in the universities and then the broader socio-political implications of those teachings. And so when I was doing this, I noticed that there was a lot of movement of Scottish students over into continental Europe, both to reformed universities. And then of course, Catholic students had to go overseas to be educated um, because they couldn't receive that education at home. So what I'm looking at in Rome is the movement of students from Scotland and from England and Ireland into their Catholic colleges in Rome. So I wanted to do a kind of cross-confessional perspective of education and networks. So my project in Rome, I'm basically using two of the main, uh, three of the main archives, excuse me, um, that are here. And that's the Irish College, the English College, and the Scots College. And so all of those are Catholic colleges um, where students would come from the three kingdoms and then they would get all of their training here. And then sometimes they would stay abroad. Sometimes they would return back and do missionary work back in the three kingdoms um, or elsewhere in the world. So 
what I'm trying to do here is look at how these students were being taught, both theologically and politically, as well as the networks that they established with people in the local communities. And oftentimes, you know, they, they studied at a college here, but then they would have local connections with people of the same religious order that was outside of their immediate college, um, et cetera. And so what I'm trying to do is look at how those networks and how the teaching really shapes their intellectual formation. And then I'm hoping to expand that right now. It's very focused in Rome, but I'm hoping to expand that into a much bigger project, which looks at the sort of movement of students from the three kingdoms to continental Europe, uh, to you know, Catholic colleges that were in Spain as well, and to reformed universities. And I think because, you know, intellectual historians often focus a lot on printed works and we like to look at lengthy printed documents that, you know, circulated around. But I think there's a lot to be said for university teaching and for the actual mobility and movement of people from the three kingdoms to Europe and how that affects how they think about the Catholic church back home, the Protestant church back home, how they're spreading ideas about politics and how they're basically engaging in knowledge exchange through their movement. Um, and I think that's often left out of intellectual histories. So that's what I'm doing and it is loosely connected still to Covenanted Scotland, but I do think it's going to be hopefully a much bigger project about student mobility and networks and how that affects sort of this, this period of religious and political conflict back home. Now, what role did the Propaganda Fide play in this? Was there some overlap? There is, yes. So. Um, um, the Propaganda Fide, actually, um, so they were primarily, so that was founded primarily to uh, put forward missionary work and to sort of emphasize missions. And um, so it was, it was quite interesting because actually one of the problems in the Scots College that they had was that a lot of Scots who came to study at the Scots College did not want to engage in sort of secular, they didn't want to become secular priests, so they didn't want to go back to Scotland and then serve in the churches. They wanted to go and join religious orders. A lot of them wanted to become Jesuits. So it's actually interesting because there was a tension between the Scots College and Propaganda Fides because they wanted to create a mission oath that required Scots who came to the Scots College to uh, basically serve three years as a secular priest um, to sort of fulfill that mission requirement. And um, so there's a lot of tension there actually between what the people who were educated at the Scots College wanted to do and then what like they needed them to go back and do in Scotland. And um, so I'm trying to get into the archives of the propaganda fides at the moment, but it is very difficult because obviously COVID restrictions um, and all of that there. So I, I don't know much yet because I haven't been able to actually visit the archive. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting connection. Like there, there's very much an overlap between what's going on sort of centrally there and then what each of these individual colleges want to do in sort of the national context, um, which I find quite interesting and I'm hoping to explore a bit more as well. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> So, Dr. Carrie Schultz, was there a Scottish revolution? Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. And I think uh, part of the reason this is an interesting question is it was my fault for, for maybe raising this on a Twitter <laughs> debate a while ago. Um, yeah, so it's something that I've struggled with. And I obviously included revolution in the title of my thesis, and it's also in the title of my book. So it's something that I need to think about, and I, I kind of I probably already have a stance on. So one of the ways that I think about it is, is it was pioneered, sort of this term of the Scottish Revolution was pioneered by David Stevenson in the 1970s. And he really put forward the idea that it was revolutionary because it resulted in a massive transfer of power uh, from the king to parliament. And it also resulted in the abolition of the clerical estate. So there was a big change in the structure of the Scottish government. And there was a big movement of power and a transition of power. And so I think for Stevenson, it was a very political, it was a dynamic political change that made it really a revolutionary moment in Scottish history. 
And I think more recently, we've seen a lot of fantastic work being done by scholars um, such as Laura Stewart, as well as other scholars that are included in Chris Langley's uh, National Covenant volume. And I think they're actually really showing how this moment in history, and particularly the National Covenant, allows disenfranchised groups in Scotland who never really participated in politics before, so maybe people who did not go to universities or women, um, they're able to use the covenant as a way to participate in the political process, as a way to create their own identities and create some sort of collective political movement. Um, in that way, it is really revolutionary and empowering. And so I think on that side, I would agree that the Scottish Revolution was revolutionary in the change in political structure, in the ideas that are being put forth that sort of move Scotland from an absolute monarchy to, you know, trying to get to a limited monarchy. Um, particularly when we look at sort of the purge of parliament after the engagement uh, in the late 1640s, I think there's a lot that goes on that really does create moments of massive political upheaval and change. But on the other hand, working a lot on the royalists, I do think we need to be pretty cognizant of continuities as well. So ideas that are maybe not changing as much. Um, so when we look at the royalists, I think we need to be aware of their ways of perpetuating ideas about divine right kingship or about the king's sovereignty over the church. Um, so I think it is an interesting interplay between, you know, what's really revolutionary and what kind of creates fundamental changes in the, the politics of Scotland, and then what ideas are actually more continuous with the past. Um, so I think when we look at both Covenanters and Royalists together, we see an interesting dynamic. But on the whole, I would say I do think it is a revolution. And I think it is a revolutionary moment in Scottish history. But I think, you know, accounting for both sides is probably a wise way to go. So on top of your book and your research, you're also a producer of a, of a podcast, aren't you? I wonder if you could tell me more about that. Yes. So this was a venture that I started during lockdown when I had plenty of time um, last summer before I moved to Rome. And so this podcast is called Research in Scottish History. And the point of it really was to just be short episodes each month about um, recent work that's being done in all areas of Scottish history. So one of the things that I noticed when I was convening uh, the Scottish History Network and sort of putting out events and advertising events was that so many conferences and different seminars are usually organized around thematic time periods or approaches to history. So you would get intellectual history conferences or you would get, you know, 19th century Scottish conferences, etc. And so there wasn't a lot of crossover between people who are working on all areas of the Scottish history. And I thought that was kind of a gap in our knowledge that I thought a podcast might, might fill quite nicely. Um, so I only ran it for six months so far. Um, and I've had to take a bit of a break on it just for, you know, reasons of writing a book and moving to Rome and trying to get everything under control here. But it's been fascinating because we've had six very diverse episodes with scholars who, you know, are studying everything from medieval to contemporary Scottish history um, from all different perspectives. And I think it's been really fascinating and I'm hoping to get back to it quite soon. Well, if you ever need a, a short list of people to interview, I might have a few ideas. <laughs> yes, 100 percent. I say you know the field very well by this point. <laughs> like you say, you've done six episodes on it. Was there anything that really stuck out as something you might not have learned if you didn't run that podcast. Yeah, so I think I learned something from every episode, really, um, because most of them, I think out of the six episodes, five of them were for areas of Scottish history completely outside mine, uh, which was fascinating. So things about medieval history, uh, kind of 1800s, and then contemporary things. 
So I think one of the things that surprised me most actually was an interview that I did with um, Linnea Kuneni, who's at St. Andrews, she's an art historian, and she's working on Scottish connections to excavations in Turkey um, at the Grand Palace in Istanbul. And that was fascinating to me because it was financed by um, Scots and then it was also connected to the University of St. Andrews. And I had absolutely no idea that Scotland played such a massive role really in one of the biggest excavations in, um, you know, the in, in Turkey itself. And so that was really interesting to me, just seeing all the ways in which Scotland not only plays a role within Scotland itself, you know, who, people who are studying sort of local and regional context in Scotland, but also the global reach that it has um, even beyond, you know, my 17th century knowledge. Um, so I found, yeah, that was absolutely fascinating, but you know, there's, there's so much work that's being done um, across the board. So Ian McInnes did an episode, I think, on um, graphic novels and like representation of Scottish warfare and medieval warfare in graphic novels and contemporary film, which was just fascinating to me. So there's been so many different things that I've learned, I think, just across the board from people who are working in such diverse fields. And um, it's really been eye-opening. So I, I really do hope to get back to it soon. Thank you, Dr. Schultz, for coming on. This has been incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for having me.